0: Well, good morning to you all. Now, usually, I would be asking you to turn to a particular passage in Scripture, but as is usual at this time of the year, we step away from verse-by-verse exposition and we start looking at topics because we don't want to break the chance for people who are away to follow things through to a conclusion. Um, And today we're going to be looking at quite a lot of verses And rather than subject anybody's Bible to the hazard of fire caused by frantic fanning of the pages to keep up, I'm just going to put everything on the overhead for you. And that means you can actually put your Bibles aside, but please don't relax so much that you fall asleep. Well, that's unless you usually do fall asleep, in which case you are excused, because I know who you are. I've been making notes. Okay. Imagine this. It's a normal Saturday morning here in Wanganui. You have a little lie-in, maybe till 2.30 or so. Get up, have some breakfast, and then drive into town. By a small miracle, there's a parking spot on the avenue just outside Kathmandu, who surprisingly are having a sale. You jump out of your car to be confronted by a grubby eight-year-old in torn clothing who asks you, $5 to look after your car, sir? Impossible, isn't it? Well, it isn't, because I can tell you from personal experience that this is a daily reality reality in many African cities, and it's not at all restricted to that continent. The United Nations estimates that globally, up to 150 million children live on the streets today in absolute poverty. And they're there for many reasons. Diseases such as AIDS, leading to the death of parents, family violence, natural disasters, economic difficulties, and so on. They are prey there on the streets to weather and authority and unscrupulous adults, and many die due to disease and accidents. Now, this picture is hopefully confrontational for you, and you might be asking Why on earth I have decided in the middle of this season of glad tidings and joy to choose this particular topic? Well, it's Boxing Day. Have you ever wondered why it's called Boxing Day? Let me give you a little history. There's a, a lot of theories about the origin of the name, but none of them define it for certain, but they do share a common theme, which is the giving of gifts and money to those in need in the position of servants, usually. Some say that the Boxing Day tradition comes from the practice in late Roman early Christian era where alms boxes were placed in churches and these were used to collect special offerings tied to the Feast of St Stephen which as it turns out is today. And on this day it's customary in some places for those alms boxes to be opened and distributed to the poor. There's an early description that comes from Britain in the 1830s defining it as the first weekday after Christmas Day observed as a holiday on which postmen, errand boys and servants of various kinds expect to receive a Christmas box. And that term, Christmas box, dates back to the 17th century and among other things meant a present or gratuity given at Christmas time. So Boxing Day, in short, has to do with those who have, giving to those who don't, sometimes in a box, on the 26th of December, which is today. And so it seems to me both natural and appropriate for us to talk and think about poverty today and the poor. But more specifically, what does God think about these things? And consequently, what should we as Christians be doing about them? Well, first up, can the problem of poverty be solved like the beauty queen's universal wish, world peace and an end to poverty? Well, sadly, I don't think so. In the Gospels of both Matthew and Mark, there is the story of a woman who is anointing Jesus' head with a very expensive fragrant oil whilst he is dining at the house of Simon the leper. The disciples are outraged. It's a terrible waste, they say. That oil could have been sold and the money given to the poor. But Jesus reproaches them. He says, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a good work for me. For the poor you have with you always. But me, you do not have always. From this text we understand that there will inevitably be people who suffer because of a lack of means. War, government policies, poor life choices, oppression by others, a national economy in tatters, extreme weather events. These are all some of the reasons for this poverty. And we see them all around us and they're just another symptom of the way that God's good creation has been broken by human sin. And however true that may be, we shall see that that does not mean that Christians shouldn't try to help them or respect them less than folk who are well-off. Now, it isn't difficult to find scriptures on the subject. A search of the New King James Version for the word poor gave me no less than 59 separate instances which are spread liberally throughout both the Old and the New Testament. And that's obviously way too much to digest in one sitting. But fortunately, if you look at them, they do broadly follow just two similar themes, which makes things much easier. And those themes are justice and mercy. As a beginning, I want to carefully explain what I mean by those two words, because we want God's justice and mercy, not the world's justice and mercy. In the world, we generally believe that a person who has committed a particularly gruesome or unnecessary murder, for instance, deserves a similar consequence. That's worldly justice. Off with their heads. However, because as a society we have decided that to hang or electrocute a person is both inhumane and bears the possibility of error in sentencing, they are instead given life imprisonment under decent living conditions and reasonable access to the legal system to to plead their case. That is worldly mercy. Yet, both in administering the justice and exercising the mercy, there is the sense that the justice is deserved, but the mercy is not. After all, this person has done something really bad. They deserve to rotten jail, and they do not really deserve a warm, dry cell and three good meals. There is a completely different way of understanding these words, though, and this is the way that we should use them as Christians. A moment ago, I mentioned a few of the usual reasons for war, for, sorry, for poverty, War, government policies, poor life choices, oppression by others, an economy in tatters, bad weather. Leaving a person to suffer because of any of these, and I do absolutely include poor life choices because they are usually the result of some other kind of oppression, is a thing that's unjust. There but for the grace of God go I. Therefore, if I have any possibility of relieving the pain by treating such people most fairly, despite what they look like or what they've done, then I must do it. That is real justice and mercy, God's justice and mercy, which are essential parts of His own character. What can we learn about God's just nature? Well the first thing it's pretty difficult to separate it from is righteousness and this is because what we read in English Bibles as justice or righteousness actually come from the same Hebrew and Greek word groups. And please don't ask me to explain that because it's a technical matter of translation (laughs) that I just don't understand. But this considerable overlap does exist. So for understanding's sake it is best to explain God's justice by using exactly the same definition as righteousness. And that is, God's righteousness means that he always acts in accordance with what is right and is himself the final standard of what is right. I had an idea that I thought might be helpful to separate the two a little, which is that God's righteousness is what he is, but justice is what he does, what he always does. Easton's Bible Dictionary has a little helpful confirmation of that. It says, justice is not an optional product of his will, but an unchangeable principle of his very nature. This means that the Lord invariably knows the right thing, and so whatever he does can invariably be used as a standard for deciding what is right and what is wrong. There's never a shifting line in the sand because of changing circumstances. And this means that we can always turn to his example of justice in every circumstance. And we'll see how that's important in the way we relate to others in a little while. So let's talk about God's mercy now. Well, mercy is part of a family. It lives together with grace and patience in what theologians collectively call God's goodness. And since that's so, there is a bit of blurring of the lines between them. When God declares his name to Moses in Exodus 34, 6, he says, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Well, there you go. Mercy, grace and patience, all tied to the Lord's identity in just one verse. And he will need all those things as he goes on to deal with Israel and later you and I. God's mercy can be defined as his goodness towards those in misery and distress. And he expresses it in different ways, for sometimes it can be expressed physically when he intervenes in physical ways. And a great example is his uh, rescue of the Israelites from slavery in Egypt. But this physical manifestation is not confined to God's people alone. You will have heard Calfain speak recently about the Lord's common grace, which is demonstrated in the way that his creation is enjoyed by both sinner and saved alike. We know that the rain does not avoid my next-door neighbor's veggie patch because they do not know Jesus as Lord. He is merciful to allow all to enjoy some fresh lettuce. But the greatest expression of God's mercy is spiritual, and its effects will not be directly seen in this life but its eternal effects are profound. All humanity was deservedly in that misery and distress because willful sin had both separated us from God and exposed us to his wrath. In that position, what we did not merit at all was his extraordinary mercy towards us. God rescued us from that wrath through Jesus, his own son who bled and died on the cross in our place. Take the punishment that we deserved. God, the very creator of the whole universe, mercifully stepped down from His throne for me and you. And that's mercy with a capital M. Now that we have a better understanding of what justice and mercy are through the way that they're modelled by God, we can have a look at a few verses that speak about their relevance to the poor. We need to get some sense as to whether there is an important there connection there in God's mind or whether it's maybe he just thinks something that's nice to have. Now I'm going to ask you to pay a bit of attention now, because I'm going to whiz through a bunch of scriptures without too much comment, really just because God's own words are a lot more convincing than mine. We'll start in Deuteronomy, remembering that it's a record of Moses' words of exp- explanation concerning the law, the essential set of rules that God is giving here to his special people Israel. This is how you're going to live, guys. "'Generosity to the poor. "'If there is among you a poor man of your brethren "'within any of the gates in your land "'which the Lord your God has given you, "'you shall not harden your heart, "'nor shut your hand from your poor brother, "'but you shall open your hand wide to him "'and willingly lend him sufficient for his need, "'whatever he needs. "'Beware, lest there be a wicked thought in your heart, "'saying, The seventh year, the year of release, is at hand, "'and your eye be evil against your poor brother.' And you give him nothing, and he cry out to the Lord against you, and it becomes sin among you. You shall surely give to him, and your heart should not be grieved when you give to him. Because for this thing the Lord your God will bless you in all your works, and in all to which you put your hand. For the poor will never cease from the land. Therefore I command you, saying, You shall open your hand wide to your brother, to your poor and your needy in your land. I want to just quickly point out three things. Well, firstly, verse eight describes both the type and the amount of God. Re- of it describes both the type and the amount of action that God requires when helping a poor man. Meet his need, not by what you think appropriate. Willingly open your hand, not grudgingly. And secondly, there's this reminder about the poor always being with us, as we've already discussed. And I say reminder, but it's certain that this particular verse is just what Jesus had in mind when he repeated it to the disciples. Thirdly, do you see the, the word command here? I command. It's not a suggestion. God commands his people to treat the poor with justice and mercy. It's not a suggestion. Unsurprisingly, the book of Psalms has a great deal to say about the poor. First up, the Lord has both an ear and a hand ready to help the poor. Psalm 34, six. This poor man cried out and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all of his troubles. Psalm 140.12 I know that the Lord will maintain the cause of the afflicted and justice for the poor. And he calls his people to do the same. Psalm 82 verses 3 and 4 defend the poor and fatherless do justice to the afflicted and needy deliver the poor and needy free them from the hand of the wicked in the book of proverbs we can see that not honoring god is a very dodgy thing to do proverbs 14:31 he who oppresses the poor reproaches his maker but he who honors him has mercy on the needy well wow. Who can say that it's a good idea to reproach sovereign, omnipotent, creator God? I hope nobody here. But Isaiah, Isaiah goes on to expand on what might be expected as a result. It's, it's woe. Woe to those who decree unrighteous decrees, who write misfortune which they have prescribed, to rob the needy of justice, and take what is right from the poor of my people, my people, that widows may be their prey, and that they may rob the fatherless. Lastly, the same author repeats the theme of the Lord's readiness to help those afflicted by poverty. Isaiah 41. The poor and needy seek water, but there is none. Their tongues fail for thirst. I, the Lord, will hear them. I, the God of Israel, will not forsake them. I'll leave it there for now. I believe the point is well made. As I said earlier, there are many, many verses that essentially say the same things. God has his eye firmly on the poor and he will always stretch out his hand to help them. But he requires his people to do the same. Justice and mercy by all and for all. Why is that? In answer, I want to jump back to Deuteronomy again because it contains one example of an important principle, which is why God expects those who have to share it willingly with those who don't. Deuteronomy 24. When you reap your harvest in your field and forget a sheaf in the field, you shall not go back to get it. It shall be for the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow, that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands." When you beat your olive trees, you shall not go over the boughs again. It shall be for the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow. When you gather the grapes of your vineyard, you shall not glean it afterwards. It shall be for the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow. And you shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. Therefore, I command you to do this thing. Verse 22 is the important bit. Remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. God is reminding the Israelites that if any of them enjoy any prosperity at present, it is because he gave it to them. Most importantly, it was freely given to them, and so they should freely give it away in turn. And moreover, no one can afford to believe that their position of power, whatever that might have been, should give them any special privileges in any way either. Everyone started as a slave, and so the playing field is perfectly level because of that. Nobody can put on any airs or graces that exempt them from helping others. This text reminds me of a character called Mrs. Do-As-You-Would-Be-Done-By, a character from the book called The Water Babies. Written in Victorian times by Charles Kingsley, it is the story of Tom, a young chimney sweep who falls into a river and seemingly drowns. However, he is changed into a water baby, whatever that is, and begins a journey of moral education. Along the way, he meets Mrs. Be Done By As You Did, a lady who shows him in a particularly memorable way the consequences of doing the bad stuff that he had done whilst he was alive. On the other hand, her opposite, Mrs. Do As You Would Be Done By, helps him to understand what is the right course for life. And through following her instruction, Tom ultimately earns himself a ticket back to real life and human form. Well, here in Deuteronomy, the Israelites are being given the same lesson. Do for others as you would like to have done for yourself. Because they are just like yourself. We here are no different. Israel was slave, saved from slavery in Egypt by God. We who profess Christ as Saviour have been saved from slavery to sin by God. No one else could have done that for us. What we read here in Deuteronomy may have been written a very long time ago, but its lesson remains the same for us today. The Lord clearly has a heart for the poor, and His people are clearly called to help those in need in practical ways. Feed them, clothe them. Treat them with the same dignity and respect that we expect for others. Because they are us. This brings me to my final point. In the Gospel of Luke chapter 4, the story is told of Jesus reading from the book of Isaiah in the synagogue. This is what he read. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. And after finishing that reading, he sat down and said, Today the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Whilst lack of money and food and water and shelter are certainly terrible things to endure, there is a far worse kind of poverty, and that is poverty of the Spirit. Jesus came and died on the cross so that that particular poverty could be banished forever. He came to give us the immeasurable riches of His grace, healing, freedom, and sight. We believers are all sinners saved by grace. We are all the same. Many who are poor are also sinners. But are yet to be saved by grace. Maybe this Boxing Day we might want to dwell on that for a while. Whilst we may be moved to give to meet the physical needs of the poor, and that is a very good thing to do, it is an obedient thing to do, we must not forget their spiritual need. And so we must ask ourselves what part can we play in proclaiming the gospel? to those who are most desperately in need. How can we offer justice and mercy in a box for them to keep forever? Let us pray. Heavenly Father, you have blessed us in this land so very, very much. And I fear that that often causes us to forget this cause that you put before us. Although we read mostly in the Old Testament about your heart for the poor, we know that you have not changed, that you still have that heart, and that you still call us to participate in the desires of your heart. Lord, I pray that through your Holy Spirit working within us, we would be reminded of that need. To use our ears and our hands to help the poor physically and our mouths to proclaim your gospel to them. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.